You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Morning, Open Door. Morning, you guys. Thanks for the greeting. Thanks for making me feel welcome. If you guys are new to Open Door, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you here. Um, I hope you feel comfortable enough to, to introduce yourself to the weirdos that sit around you. If they're too weird, you can come up and talk to me after the service. If I'm too weird, my wife is in the front. She's way cuter and more approachable than me. So you've got options. You've got options. Um, yeah, guys, so, so excited for this morning. Um, if you've been a part of this series or, or been with us going through this series or listened online in, in any portion, uh, you may have noticed a trend. I know I have noticed a distinct trend. Um, the trend is one of seniority, I'm going to be honest with you. Straight up, it's a very serious matter. Uh, not going to name names, but the two younger people that do the teaching in this series have given, been given the harder passages. It's just obvious that that's been the case. Um, I mean, last week, uh, Caleb had to preach on an entire chapter, which is absurd. And he killed it, by the way. He knocked it out of the park. But, uh, um, and then my passage today focuses entirely on death. It's great. It's great. So, <laughs> um, so not, not pointing any fingers, not naming any names for the people that planned this series, but two points make a line, right? Come on. Just saying. No. Obviously, that statement is dripping with sarcasm. That's not how we plan out the series. But uh, the reality is this passage this morning is tough. It's hard. Um, and it's, it's seemingly ironic that our series is called Life Worth Living, and we're talking about death uh, this morning. But I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of what Solomon's intent is uh, in this entire book and in this passage. Uh, Remember, he's looking at the entire human experience and he's trying to do it to find some sort of purpose somewhere. And in order to do that, he's got to look at death because that's part of the experience. Whether firsthand or secondhand, we all have encounters that surround this concept. And so he needs to go there or else he wouldn't go everywhere. So, so he's calling us to go there with him this morning. He's trying to go to the jaws of death and pull life from it. And that might mean we get cut up by the teeth a little bit. But we've got to go there. So that's where Solomon's taking us. There's so much beauty to unpack here, so I just want to, I want to pray and I want to jump in, you guys. Oh, dear Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for the gift that we have of gathering together to read a book that's been preserved for thousands of years that contains uh, truth of your character that's relevant to us today. Uh, I pray that that Solomon's words, Solomon's observations here resonate with us. Uh, And not just in this room, not just in these uh, couple hours that we spend here, but Uh, that leaving these doors and into our weeks and into our various contexts, that these words have powerful impact. Uh, Spirit, just move here. Just move in this body. You are present uh, in these words. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. If you guys want to follow along, I'm going to read. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous 
and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Told you guys it'd be dark. Told you guys he'd go there. But he has this weird shift at the end of the passage, right? He goes, death, darkness, evil, madness, enjoy life. It's like when I read that surface level, the first time I read that, I'm like, this dude is crazy. Like he is jumping around. Uh, Emotional sentiments are probably driving him. And he maybe left his journal feeling depressed and then came back and and wrote something uh, happy. Like all of this runs through my head. But when you reflect on what Solomon's trying to do through the full book here, I think it, it points us to the fact that he's got a purpose. He's got an intent with why he structures it the way he does. And if we consider him one of the wisest men who've ever lived, as the Bible depicts him, then there's reason that he does this. And so I want to try to get at the reason that there's this weird dichotomy in this passage here. And before I do that, I want to preface this passage with a couple things that I think are worth noting. Uh, The first thing uh, is a phrase that he uses, and it's one that you guys probably recognize from this series. Uh, He uses the phrase, under the sun, again. And I just want to remind us that when he's saying that, he's only looking at things from a temporal or worldly perspective. He's taking in all the empirical evidence that he can through his five senses and trying to derive purpose there. So when you hear that, know that he's intentionally limiting himself. He's not looking at the comprehensive eternal perspective. So just a a reminder there. Uh, Second thing is a, I think, implicit distinction that Solomon makes that I want to make explicit for us. Uh, And it's uh, between these two ideas or terms, the eternal and the temporal. And so I've got a couple working definitions here that I want to fill you guys in on so you know, because I'm going to use these phrases throughout the rest of the morning. I want to make sure we're on the same page when I use those. So the first definition is of the eternal. It's the perspective that focuses on the facets of our human experience that transcend the material or the worldly. So things like love and hope and joy and courage and bravery and things like that. Things that you can't put under a microscope, things that aren't necessarily empirically evident, but we know are there. The second thing is the temporal. And that's the perspective that focuses on the facets of our human experience that expire as we do the things that are, in their essence, worldly. So things like money or fame or country. Because ultimately, the Roman Empire fell. And ultimately, 
no matter how many Instagram likes you get or how many retweets you get, those things won't exist eventually. And money, believe it or not, doesn't have a currency transfer rate after death. Like there's nowhere on Google you can look that up. So the temporal are the things that ultimately dissipate, that ultimately will be, as Solomon says, like vapor. And that's where he spends most of his time in this passage. But interestingly enough, he starts us with just a glimpse of the eternal in verse 1. See, he tells us that the righteous and the wise and their deeds, they're in the hand of God. That is not a temporal observation. Like, God is not actually physically in the world with, like, the righteous people over here in his hand, right? He doesn't have this supermassive mitt that's holding everyone. No, that's, a, that's a, a, an eternal statement, a metaphor for what uh, the, the eternal relationship of the righteous have with God. And there's a couple things that are important to that statement and why he starts us with the eternal perspective. The first thing is that he's identifying who the righteous are and what their placement is here. So the, the, the relationship, being in the hand of God, indicates an eternal connection. You are in direct communication with the living God. But what does righteous mean? I think it's important for us to identify that, especially in our culture, because we have a tendency to equate righteousness with self-righteousness today. So the idea of someone being so righteous, well, aren't you righteous, right? We all think that about people who seem to kind of puff up their chests and can see like the top of everyone else's heads. The way that they live seems to elevate themselves. And the reality is Solomon doesn't define righteousness that way, and neither does the Bible. Solomon, just chapters ago in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, tells us that outward moral tidiness and holiness is not righteousness. That's not what it is. And those things, by definition, happen to be temporal. They happen to be just outward worldly expressions. They have nothing to do with the eternal significance of righteousness. So, so what is righteous? And I think if we trace that word in Hebrew, it's sadiq is the word he uses, and view how it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, I think we get a glimpse of what it means. Perhaps the most noteworthy example of this was in Genesis 15 uh, with uh, a man named Abraham. And just to, to remind you of that story or inform you of that story if you haven't heard it before, Abraham is a man living generations before Solomon. And he's called by God to leave his, his family and his country and his land to go to a new land. And God tells him that I'm going to bless you and the entire world through, through you. Uh, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars, God says. And keep in mind, this is before we've really messed up the earth with pollution and things like that, so there's a lot of stars. Like if I walked outside, I'd see like 12, and I'd be like, all right, whatever, 12 kids, sweet. Cheaper by the dozen. Awesome. Thanks, God. Abraham is looking at hundreds, thousands of stars. He can't count them. He starts and he loses track. Now, the implications of that call are crucial. See, in that culture, to leave your family, to leave your nation, to leave your land was to leave your earthly identity. Where you were from is how you were defined in the world. And to leave that to go somewhere else because God is calling you is saying, I'm going to kill my identity. I'm going to leave it behind and go chase after this God. And I'm going to choose to trust the promise that he makes. And in doing that, in leaving behind how the earth defines me and trusting how God is going to deliver me, 
I have righteousness. See, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's the same root word that Solomon uses here. It has nothing to do with outward moral tidiness. The Ten Commandments didn't even exist when Abraham was alive, so he couldn't have even like, crossed off the checklist, right? He just has faith, and that's appointed to him as righteousness in God's sight, so he's in the hand of God. So that's the important distinction I want to make here. The righteous have an eternal significance, not a temporal, worldly holiness necessarily. And that's the perspective that Solomon gives us. And then he looks at the results. He, then he dips to the temporal. So he gives us this eternal lens and then says, okay, the eternal are, are those that are in the hand of God, but how does that affect results in the temporal? How do I see it? And the reality is, since we're temporal, finite beings as humans, we don't have much vision into that eternal that we'd like. Definitely not as much as, as we think we should have, Right? our vision can only extend so far in the temporal world. So to grasp that idea is tough for us if we just look around the world. I think there's an effective metaphor that, that kind of gives a, a picture for this. Um, just recently I went to, uh, to Mexico with my wife Emily's family for her sister's 30th birthday. Actually, she may not want me to say 30th. Her sister's 21st birthday. It was amazing. No, just kidding. Um, but we go to Mexico. Uh, her sister's name is Megan. Megan found this amazing Airbnb uh, online, and it's part of this huge resort that we stayed at, and so we get there. There's no one there, so it feels like it's been abandoned, like a, a zombie movie or something, so you're a little bit scared, and then you see the ocean, and you're like, oh, whatever. We're fine, um, uh, but she got this whole condo. It had three bedrooms. Eight of us were able to stay there. Each bedroom had its own bathroom, uh, had its own, like, hot tub thing. You had a uh, a kitchen and a, a dining table and couches and a TV, and it was just beautiful. Uh, and then on the, the balcony, there were, there were glass doors that led you out toward the ocean so that you could see the ocean from the room. You open up these glass doors, and there's this balcony that spans the whole stretch of our condo. And then you look out over the balcony, and there's this resort-style pool and an infinity pool that leads up to the beach, and then the beach to the ocean. It was beautiful. So we got to spend the weekend there. It was a blast, and, and each morning, because I'm in seminary and have way too much reading to do, I would wake up and read for about an hour before we went to the beach or to, to the pool or whatever else, whatever else we did. Um, and uh, uh, in, in reading, I would typically just sit on that balcony, and I would just look over the ocean, and I'd do some writing or reflection or, or reading or whatever I was doing that morning. And I was writing some poetry one point. I was looking at the ocean, and then... Like, I just, I just set my phone down. I was writing on my phone, and I just looked out and was just struck by the vastness of what I could see. Just ocean upon ocean and, and waves and foam crashing, and it was beautiful blue, and the sun hit it just right. It was amazing. And so I decided, I, thinking back to that this week, I decided to look up because I didn't know how far I was actually seeing to the horizon, right? And we're on the sixth story at this condo, so I'm a, a little bit high up, and so I looked up maybe some stats to find how far I was seeing to the horizon. And from about 100 feet, a little bit higher than where I was, but from about 100 feet, you can see a grand total of 12 miles to the horizon with a naked eye. 12 miles. That is nothing. That is minuscule compared to the massiveness of the Pacific Ocean. I was barely scratching the surface. And I think our earthly vision remains somewhat similar 
God might be viewing the entire ocean. He might have us held in his hand and in direct relationship with us, but we're only able to see from the coastline. And so we can tend to be consumed with what's immediately in front of us. We tend to look at the earthly results to find purpose rather than the thing beyond the horizon. And so we reduce this timeless, eternal truth to this constrained conceptualization. conceptualization. Dang it, I thought I was going to nail that word. So close. Conceptualization. My brain had it, my mouth didn't. My mouth was not caught up. So Solomon here, he's reminding us in verse 1 that there's an, an eternal truth here that we can grasp onto every time that we go to the temporal. We can know that the righteous are in the hand of God, and that transcends anything else that we can empirically decipher from the ocean in front of us, right? And that also gives us a glimpse and definition of what faith looks like. See, because I'm trusting, though I can't empirically see it at the moment, that there's something beyond the horizon that gives me purpose, that gives me significance. And that's not blind faith, you guys. I want to remind us, that's not blind. Because truly, if I'm looking at the ocean, I'm still struck by its vastness even in 12 miles. Like there's still evidence that I can see in front of me that points me to the eternal. It's not blind but it is a leap of faith. See, it makes sense to me that the ocean doesn't just drop off at the horizon where I can't see anymore, but I still have to take a leap of faith because I can't see it. And when I live this way, when I live with the eternal in the midst of the temporal, it changes everything about my actions. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully in Mere Christianity. He said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set, foot on, or set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the e English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And so if we seek to define purpose by the temporal things that we see, we can't get heaven. We can't get eternal truth that changes how I live. So we must keep in mind the knowledge of the everlasting when we look at the non-lasting. If we don't, we'll be lost. The eternal cannot be comprehensively defined by the temporal, though the temporal can point to the eternal. I think I've got a slide that says that. The eternal cannot be contained within the temporal, though the temporal can point us to the eternal. And for Solomon, he spends much of this book looking at the temporal. He spends the rest of this passage, for the most part, looking at the temporal. And so he, he basically takes in this empirical evidence, and he continues to say in verse 1 here, whether it is love or hate, man cannot know. Both are before him. And that statement there is looking at the results of what the eternal perspective might be that we can see. He's telling us that within the world, we can only see the temporal, only the chaotic crashing of waves that come into shore. 
And in that sense, everything seems trivial. When I can only see the thing in front of me, it doesn't seem like it has purpose because good men die and bad men thrive. And there seems to be no earthly correlation between them. And that sets the tone for Solomon as he starts to descend under the sun to find purpose. And it's amazing here because he, he kind of uh, accepts a challenge that someone might pose. Like he, he says, here's the eternal perspective. Oh, you don't believe me? You don't believe that that gives purpose and that you can find it in the world? Okay, let's go look. I'll walk there with you right now. Let's take a look. And he does that by examining death in this passage. He transitions to show us how wrong it is to aim at the temporal for purpose. He goes under the sun. And I think there's a, I actually found this amazing list that I think is super insightful for us uh, of, of famous people. So I'm going I'm to read it off. Abraham Lincoln, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Genghis Khan, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Christopher Columbus, Walt Disney, Ernest Hemingway, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Mother Teresa. They all have one thing in common. They're all dead. Every single one of those people is dead. Within the world, all people of all backgrounds and all levels of goodness and faith, like I listed on that list, they die. That's what Solomon says here in verses 2 and 3. So if you just look at the world, if you just look at Mother Teresa and Joseph Stalin and see that they both die, you're not going to find purpose there. You're not going to find significance because it passes away. And eventually, every single one of those people will be a footnote in a history book. Like right now, we're pretty historically close to all of those, so we had a recollection of those famous people and what they did. But eventually, a history book will just talk about the events that surrounded them, and then it will shift to the, the movements that inspired them, and then eventually, they'll just be a name in a book. And also... In case you forgot, Solomon reminds us here that there's death, right? And then the heart of the children of men are evil and full of madness before they die. It's kind of an extension of that cliche, life sucks and then you die. He's just like, like going into more detail about it. <laughs> so we're pretty terrible people all around and then we expire. And in the midst of everything, in the midst of all of that is madness. And it makes me think of uh, specifically that word madness, this recent movie that came out in 2015. My brother's smiling because I think he knows what I'm about to say. Uh, there's a, a movie that came out in 2015 uh, that was a remake of an old one. Uh, it's Mad Max, Fury Road. I don't know if any of you guys saw it. It's a violent movie. It's a dark movie. If, if you get freaked out by that or, or eked out by that, don't watch it. But it gives this powerful picture of a world uh, where everyone is kind of on their own. And so just as a background of the plot, uh, there's some sort of apocalypse that happened, and this is post-apocalyptic. It's kind of assumed that it's some sort of nuclear fallout that happened. And the whole world is like this orangish-reddish hue, sort of like Sedona Red. It's like the, the orangish hue over everything. And so it just makes you feel like, this is not right. Like, this can't be healthy to breathe this in. It's just not, not, a, not a good world. And Max, the main character, he's played by Tom Hardy in this movie, He's, he's kind of a loner. He's on his own. And we don't really get an indication of his past too much, but we do get an indication that he has some, some ghosts from his past that still haunt him. People that he wasn't able to save. People that he wasn't able to get past this apocalyptic event. And so they haunt him. 
And so he's having to run from those, but he's also isolated, having to fend for himself in this new world. So he's running from the present and from the past to an undisclosed future. And there's a, a, another character in this. He's a, a, the dictator, kind of the main antagonist. And he is all about grasping as much power as he can. So he has four wives that are just there, basically their only responsibility is to birth his children, his heirs. And then he has uh, control over all the water. And so he has thousands of people that will come up with these dirty pots as he has this waterfall that he'll shut on and shut off uh, to allow them to drink. And so all of them are dependent on him. And so he is just grasping for control. He's taking as much as he can so that he can sustain himself in this world. And then there's these characters that live under him. They're kind of the creepiest part of the movie. They're called half-lives. And they're people that were somewhat affected by this apocalyptic event. They're pale. They have these, these tumors. So it's kind of implied that they are dying or sick. And they have to always pursue certain things in this world in order just to stay alive. And so they are bent on it. They're crazy. Their eyes are always wide, kind of zombie-like look. And so every character in this world is only grasping at things that give them purpose or significance. They're only grasping at their own stuff, the things that will provide for them. And that's actually what the world looks like if we don't have the eternal. If we don't have something beyond the horizon, then it's just us grasping for as much as we can, whether it's pleasure or power or money or fame. That leads to madness across every background. Remember that game, Hungry Hungry Hippos? Where you're just going and going, and you're just smashing the button as hard as you can to get as many of those as you can? Or Lord of the Flies? Anybody read Lord of the Flies? If you put a bunch of proper British schoolboys on an island, in like a month or less, they're all savages, and they'll kill each other. There's something about our human condition that causes us to, to grasp as much as we can for our own sake. And if we're left to ourselves, if we're left to our own devices, under the sun, there would be no significance. When we lose an eternal lens, we simultaneously lose all things eternally important. Things like joy and peace and kindness and goodness. We lose all of that if we lose an eternal lens. The world itself viewed on its own terms, is a dark, evil, death-ridden wasteland. It's not fair, it's not proper, and it certainly doesn't reward justly. It chews us up, it spits us out. So why live, right? I mean, if that's what the world is, why do I actually go about waking up every day? If we're all simply dust returning to dust and we don't receive justice or reward for our actions now, why do we live? And maybe most importantly, how can a good God be present in a world like that? How can God exist and be good in a world that exists that way? That's perhaps the most prominent and valid objection to the Christian faith that's ever existed. And remember, Solomon is not doing this for pointlessness. He's not pointing us to nihilism. No, he's reminding us that the eternal things are not intrinsically rewarded by earthly things. And that that consideration, that perspective, should never be my primary pursuit. If I'm doing a heavenly thing, if I'm doing something eternally significant, 
earthly reward should not be my expectation. And that's why he tells us that the living have hope. The people that live now look beyond the world for significance. And while I breathe, I have something beyond my line of sight that enables me to live well and brings me joy. It gives me virtue, it gives me purpose, and it's all rooted in the eternal. That's what the life of faith is. That's what the life of Christ is. Like, think of all these things right now that I'm about to list and, and what they're rooted in, either the eternal or the temporal. So the life that's enraptured by laying down one's life for others, right? Like Jesus told us to do. Or, or taking in the foreigner as one of your own. Or looking after the orphan and the widow. Or loving one's enemies. Or drawing people to goodness. All of those things first and foremost, consider the eternal soul of another as the primary pursuit. It has nothing to do with the temporal consideration of what the results of those actions might be. Those things are heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. So we shouldn't live with this expectancy of any sort of reward that will inevitably pass away in the world. Our hope is well beyond those things. And sure, earthly rewards might come every once in a while. But to expect that earthly reward for heavenly virtue is like expecting a gumball for a brick of gold. The value doesn't line up. And look at what happens to our life when that becomes our primary motivation, when the temporal becomes our motivation to commit acts that are uh, in the eternal realm. I think there's two things that happen. First, if we receive that reward, if we receive the gumball for the brick of gold, then we'll actually start to elevate our self-worth a little bit. We'll actually start to think that the way that we're acting does actually put us at a notch above some others, right? It gives us a standard. And so I, I got all this fame and money, so it kind of puts me slightly above you. That's one way it destroys us. It, it gives us self-righteousness. And the second way it destroys us is if we don't receive that reward when we expect it. Because if that's the case, we'll start to justify uh, our own misaction. Like we'll say, I, I did the right thing. I acted in the right way, and that dude didn't, and he got it, and I didn't. How does that make sense? I do everything correctly. I do all the eternal things. I love my family. I love my friends. I love my neighbor. And that person, well, they get everything. And we become bitter and angry. And really what that does to us is it conditions us to desire a treat. A treat for every eternal thing we do. We become a dog when we're acting as if we're a saint. Okay, so that's what death does. I get it, Solomon. It's all dark. But how does that motivate me, right? I can see that it's all pointless in the temporal. I can see that the world is not just... But how does that motivate me? And I think Solomon goes there in verses 5 through 9. See, in these verses, we get a picture of how death motivates the living. Death brings us to a realization that everything we're experiencing now does not last. And so if we as the living know that we will die, as he says in verse 5, it ought to produce in us this paradoxical pursuit of life. The value of things is put into perspective when I know that they pass away. I embrace life more fully when I know the ease with which it can be taken away. And there are powerful examples in every person's life that you could point to here. But one recently for me, it's simple, it's small. 
couple weeks ago, I was super sick. <laughs> was not feeling good. Went to work Monday morning, kind of a sore throat. By the end of the day, I had a, like felt feverish, and so I took some NyQuil and slept, and Tuesday was feeling better in the morning, so went to work, and same thing, like 3, 4 p.m., just feverish, and that went through the whole week. I tried to make it through the whole week and tried to get it better, and it didn't. So I went to the doctor, um, well, actually, Friday. My body was like trying to set records with a fever. It was at like 104, and so that's when I was like, time to go to the doctor. I can't beat this. So I go Saturday. They diagnose me with strep throat, and I get antibiotics, and I'm good to go. But during that week, laying in bed, I just got texts or notifications about things. And my friends were saying, hey, you want to go play basketball one night this week? Or hey, you want to go get lunch with me sometime? Or dinner after work sometime this week? Well, let's go grab drinks on this night. Hey, did you read this book recently? You want to go see a movie? Whatever it is. And I wasn't able to participate in any of those things. And then Emily would come home and I'd just be in bed. So I wouldn't even want to go to dinner with her. I'm just exhausted. I'm sweating under the covers. Right? I, I just felt terrible. And in that realization, I started to see how important those little things to me are as soon as they're taken away. See, on any other week when I'm healthy, I do all those things and don't even think about it. It's just life. It's just fun. But then when I realize how quickly they can be taken away by a small microscopic bacteria, I get a new appreciation for them. And all I wanted to do was talk with friends and enjoy it. All I wanted to do was go to dinner with Emily and have a date night and just enjoy it. And so I realize that those things, the value of those temporal things are found in me only when I realize that they're passing. And that enables me to live with joy precisely because I know how temporal life is. I'm able to be more present because I have a grasp on the fact that the temporal thing, whatever it is I'm experiencing now, will not necessarily last, and certainly not to the same extent that it is now. In that sense, I can embrace everything for what it is worth in the moment. I can be present. And it's only in understanding the passing nature of the world that I can begin to enjoy the things in it for what they are. And that only happens when I understand that my purpose and fulfillment is rooted in something beyond those things. It's rooted in something beyond the horizon. And it transcends the earthly. And when I don't do this, that is, when I overplace value in the temporal, when I make those things, hanging out with friends or dinner or whatever it is, when I make that the purpose, it becomes vapor. That's what we've learned throughout this whole series. Something that I can't have substance in, something that slips through my fingers. And so when I make that the goal, I'll go to bed that night and feel like I need to have that thing again, over and over and over. It will never, ever satisfy because it's temporal and passing. We cannot hold on to the temporal as if it has lasting substance. If we do, we destroy ourselves. When we make any good, healthy, enjoyable thing the ultimate thing, we're ensuring that it will ruin us. For it's that thing that will disappear. It's that thing that is vapor. It's that thing that dies with us. I've got that on the slide too, I think. Maybe not. 
Say that one more time. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say it one more time. I was going to. I was wanting to. When we make any good, healthy, enjoyable thing the ultimate thing, we're ensuring that it will ruin us. For it is that thing that will disappear. It's that thing that's vapor. It's that thing that dies with us. But when I see the thing for what it is, a gift provided by God for my enjoyment in the moment, and then to be let go of rightfully, I get to enjoy it more fully because it fails to define me. It fails to give me purpose. And furthermore, it points me to what my purpose should be, what the eternal significance actually is. Guys, that's why Jesus calls himself the bread of life. In John chapter 6, he tells us that we should not work for the food that perishes, but instead take up the true bread from heaven. Jesus is telling us here that he is the bread of life. He is the bread that gives us purpose. And that means that any time I eat temporal bread, it can point me to what the living bread is. It can point me to what the eternal joy is. Regardless of how delicious that bread is in the moment, man, I've got a greater bread. And so when this goes away, and when I'm finished with this, I have something way, way, way more significant. So that's why he tells us to eat and drink in verse 7. Not because the eating and drinking themselves will fulfill you completely, but because they're good things that are designed for enjoyment and meant to be released. And maybe the most important thing in this passage, if you take nothing else away, take this away, that we need to enjoy life with our wife. Okay? I know the women are up at the women's retreat, but I got their back. Wives, every husband in here heard that. Okay, so if you're watching online later, I'm looking out for you, all right? No, but truly, spouses as well are passing. They're in the world. And so if we put everything even into that, we miss it. And we'll end up uh, being dissatisfied by even them. When I do this, when I actually enjoy things fully without placing my entire purpose into them and then let go of them when they fade and appreciate the one who gave them to me in the first place as the source, I'm brought in this divine dance of enjoyment, of pleasure. And that's why he shifts to that at the end of this passage. There's this undercurrent that's evident here. In this passage, and I think in the whole of Scripture, truly, that death is intended to open us up to new life. That is, our acceptance and awareness of death in some sense, philosophically, theologically, metaphorically, or literally. It's the catalyst for us to experience more full life. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's. Matthew 10, he tells us, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The metaphor he gives us there of, of taking up our own cross, you guys, the cross was a torture-oriented death device. That's what the cross was. That's like me telling you to take up your electric chair. And what Jesus is telling us here is you need to die to everything worldly if you're going to follow me. Every other identity that you try to grasp and balance while you're following me, they're going to fall and then you're going to have to pick them up and you're going to lose sight of me. If you try to balance all these plates, wear all these hats while also calling yourself a follower of me, you're not going to get the most full joy because those things will disappear. 
Those things are vapor. Paul uses it as a metaphor to articulate this new life we're given in Christ, right? All over the epistles, maybe most notably in in Romans, he says, we've been buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. How amazing that is to consider myself dead to sin. It's buried, it's in the grave. It's left in that tomb that Jesus left. And now I just get to walk in freedom, in newness that's not defined by that thing and is instead defined by the joy I have in Jesus. And that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness, that goodness, that faithfulness, that gentleness, that self-control, oh man, it's way more satisfying. G.K. Chesterton, in his autobiographical apologetic work, Orthodoxy, I think summed this idea of death to life, of death motivating us to life beautifully. I don't have a slide for it, but just listen to how he, he depicts this. He says, A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he'll be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he'll be suicidal and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and drink death like wine. No philosopher, I fancy, has ever expressed this romantic riddle with adequate lucidity, and I certainly have not done so, but Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits of it in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living and him who dies for the sake of dying. And Solomon does the same thing here. He invites us into greater life with a realization and articulation of physical death. See, when I know that a pursuit of purpose in earthly things is actually dead and will only lead me to death and that the temporal doesn't define my identity, I'm freed to enjoy them as complementary to my eternal, lasting satisfaction in Jesus. So I can eat my bread with joy because I know I have an eternal one waiting for me. This narrative flows through all of Scripture and this concept culminates... And the one thing that every Christian who's ever lived affirms. It's the most transformative event in history. Indeed, death as a means to life is the crux of everything that's ever happened. Jesus' death and resurrection. For Jesus, having lived the life that we're unable to, having died the death that we were supposed to, having risen as we were not capable, now beckons us to the greater life, rooted in relationship with him. His death leads to our life. And as we stand on the shore of this place, and as those temporal grains of sand flow through our toes, we remain rooted in a hope that transcends what we can empirically decipher in the waves. It's a hope beyond the horizon, and it gives us a life worth living.